Amen. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder, comes on the heels of the fifth commandment. I know that's incredibly insightful on my part. But it's relevant because I want you to just look back in verse 12 for a second. We looked at this several weeks ago, but it says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And then the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. I pointed out to you that the word honor in the ancient world is a word that literally means heavy. And it has the idea of placing value on. And when someone murders another people, and it's an ugly word just to say the word murder, what it is is it's not esteeming value. It's de- the devaluing of life. Now, some of you have been around for a long time and you've heard about this Sanctity of Life Sunday. But I want you to think about that, that word. Sanctity means that which is holy, that which is precious, that which, is ha- which has great value. I'll give you an illustration. Let's say you're driving in your car and it's a dark night and you see something laying in the road. And as you get closer, you realize it's a possum. You would have a very different reaction if you got closer to that shape and you realized it was a person. There's a big difference between a possum and a person. And here's why. Because man, mankind, is made in the image of God. And this gives us a heightened value. In the book of Genesis, right after Noah got off the ark, take a peek with me, just one book back. Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his sons are getting off the ark and God is, everything's restarting and then people are going to spread out in chapter 10. But if you look at Genesis 9, you'll see an early pronouncement of this value and an early pronouncement of something called capital punishment. God blessed Noah, Genesis 9-1, his sons, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, good, all the way down to verse 6, Genesis 9 Whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So notice it's by the uh, action of another, and we'll talk about this in a second. By man his blood shall be shed, for the, in the image of God he made man. The reason that capital punishment is instituted in the scripture is because men and women are made in the image of God. Now, I'm not sure what's going on with possums, but I did hear kind of a funny anecdote, and it will, it will answer the question. It's one of the deep philosophical thoughts of our time. Why did the chicken cross the road? Do you guys know why? To show possums it's possible. Okay, let's turn back to Exodus chapter 20. If... If you were to go on the street with a microphone in the city of Corona, let's say, or wherever you may live, and let's say that you ask people, could you name the Ten Commandments? I would imagine that most people could probably come up with the Sixth Commandment. Uh, Doesn't it say something like, you shall not kill anyone, right? Most people can come up with that one. Ray Comfort's ministry, they do evangelism, and they use the Ten Commandments to kind of open people's eyes to their need for a Savior. And they were in a mall and one of the episodes that they share on the way of the master training, and they are asking people, can you name the Ten Commandments in like 30 seconds? It was very sad to see how many people just were like, microphone in their face, and they were like, you shall not, you shall not. And some of the people got the, 
kill anyone. And then it, there was almost like a prideful thing. Well, at least I haven't done that. I haven't killed anyone. I've been thinking about it, but, <laughs> you know. But the truth of the matter is that the depth of the law does not have to do with just your outward actions. The depth of the law goes much deeper. In fact, theologians will tell you that when you look at the Ten Commandments, there's an outside and an inside aspect to the commandment. And that's something important to note. Whenever you read one of the commandments, it has to do with outward actions, no doubt. And the outward actions are more severe and more serious. But there's an inward responsibility to the law as well. And we'll get to that. And I will tell you this. When we get to it, you may not be as innocent as you think you are. Because the law goes deep and it confronts each of us. Now, some of the translations of Exodus 20, verse 13, if you have a King James say, thou shall not kill, the RSV has it that way as well. But the sixth commandment is literally transliterated from Hebrew to English as never murder or you shall not murder. And all of the modern translations render it this way. They make a distinction between killing and murder. So if you have a New American Standard, ESV, NIV, New King James, New Living Translation, they all use the idea of the word murder. You shall not murder. Because there is a distinction to be made. We just saw it in Genesis 9-6 where God does ordain what we might call the right taking of a life. Let's define our terms and then we'll get into some depth on this. The Hebrew word for murder is ratzak. If you're taking notes, it's R-A-T. S-A-C-H, Ratzak. It means to murder, to slay, to kill. The word includes any form of wrongful death, including murder in cold blood, manslaughter with passionate rage, negligent homicide resulting from recklessness or carelessness. In fact, the same word is used for people who might have accidentally killed somebody and could flee to a city of refuge. If you want to look up this later, you can turn to Numbers chapter 35 in your Bible. We won't go there this morning. But these cities of refuge were uh, established so that if you killed somebody accidentally, you could flee to that city and be spared from the, what was called the avenger of blood so that they wouldn't uh, take out vengeance upon you. You could hide there and be safe there. And so this is what the Bible is saying. Uh, a good definition, if you uh, would like to write this down, and I think it's very important that you do. The Hebrew language has eight different words for killing. The one used here has been chosen carefully, ratzak. It is never used in the legal system or in the military. So it's never used of capital punishment or war. The best rendering of the sixth commandment is you shall not kill unlawfully. You shall not kill unlawfully because there are lawful reasons to kill. For example, if you were trying to defend your life or the life of your family, let's say, and this came out in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, you know, which is very public. He was there and all the stuff was going on and he had a gun and he was threatened and uh, he shot a few people and the court decided that he acted in self-defense. And so that was the whole defense for the Kyle Rittenhouse case was that he was threatened and he shot somebody and he wounded a man and killed another. And the court determined that he acted in self-defense. 
Whatever you may think of that case, that was, that was what happened in terms of the outcome. And so self-defense is a reason and something called just war. There's a whole treatment on just war theory, and it's something like this. If uh, an army is invading different lands and taking innocent life and trying to take what doesn't belong to them, and another nation rises up, like in World War II, and goes to defend other people and to go to war, then killing within that war would be seen as just. If it was to stop or keep uh, evil from being perpetrated further. In the idea of capital punishment, as hard as this is for some of us to kind of work through and understand, if someone is killing other people and they are dealt with, then that might save other lives and might keep them from killing again. Laxed laws in any culture really don't do a whole lot of good. You guys know that there's been many movements now with no cash bail and stuff like this and many things that have become laxed in our culture. And perhaps people have good motives for putting those things into place. But what they typically do because of how mankind is is they, they cause more crime. Because people will always kind of walk up to the line. So today I think they've established that if it's $1,000 or less, then it's not a felony. And so people are going right up to that limit. Someone came up to me after first service. I don't know if this is serious or not. You can look it up and said that people now can claim what they stole on their taxes. The IRS wants to know if you stole $900 worth of stuff because they want to collect taxes on that money. And the person told me, and I imagine it's real, that if you give the money back, then you don't have to claim it on your taxes. And all God's people said, no, duh. <laughs> but, but the fact that the IRS is even involved in something like this shows us the craziness to where we have arrived. Now, now there was another big case uh, that has just been concluded, and that's the Ahmad Arbery case, where those three men pursued him, and he was killed, and they've all essentially gotten life sentences for that for taking someone's life. And this is what law has been established on. I think every culture would tell you that the murder of a person is wrong. The unlawful taking of a life is against what we know is morally right. We don't even need the written law to know it. We know life is precious. Human life is very precious, and it is precious to God. And so we've been kind of touching on the issue of, is there a right time to kill, or is it ever right to kill? Ecclesiastes 3.3 says there's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to tear down and a time to build up. So what do we do with this, and how do we understand biblical revelation? Let me share with you what's happened through time. When the nation of Israel was established by God, and God called Abraham and then he gave his commandments as we are going through them right now on Mount Sinai. He set apart Israel as a light to the nations. And when Israel went into the land of Canaan, into what's called the promised land, they became God's tool of judgment. When you read Old Testament passages where cities are wiped out and it seems like, you know, what, who is this God of the Bible that tells Israel to go in and destroy everybody? What is going on? Well, Israel has become a tool of God to mete out his justice. And you will notice as you read different scriptures that God waited until the sin had gotten so bad 
And then Israel became his tool to mete out his justice on the earth. They were his theocratic nation. This is true of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament to become his channel of both good and light, mercy and compassion, but righteousness and vengeance. And when Israel went astray, what did God do? He used Assyria and Babylon to come in and judge his own people. And it was ugly. And many of them died and many of them were carried off to captivity because God is a just God and he's no respecter of persons. Now, as the Bible unfolds and we move from what's called the Old Testament to the New Testament, would you turn, hold your place in Exodus and turn to the book of Romans chapter 13. Here's what's happening. There's no theocratic nation anymore. There's a church that's living in the midst of civil government. And civil government has now been given the responsibility to mete out justice, but not individual people. This is Romans 12, and this is especially relevant to the church. These are some of the toughest verses in the New Testament, but here's what it says. Romans 12, 17 says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right, Romans 12, 17, in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people or all men. And I take refuge in that verse because it's not always possible, right? You do what you can. You do the right thing. People don't often reciprocate. But if it's possible, as much as you can, you do what's right. You be at peace. Never take your own revenge, 19, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, in the original letter, there's no chapter breaks. And so Paul continues. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, the civil government of your area, if you will. There's no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Drop down to verse four, or actually three. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have fear of no, no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, this is civil authority now, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword, and that has the idea of capital punishment there, for nothing, for it, Civil government is a minister of God, notice, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So this side of heaven, the way that God's vengeance is meted out is by civil government acting under the authority of God's law. Now, whenever a government gets away from God's law, that's when we have to begin to ask the question, is that government actually in keeping or in check with what biblical revelation would say. But here, just all things being equal, the civil government carries out the justice. And here we have a whole system based on, you know, courts of law, etc., and defenses, and you get to stand before your accusers, and etc. And there's all this law that's been established to figure out the facts. And so this is how the commandment unfolds, and this is some of what uh, answers the question, is there ever a right time to take a life? Well, we talked about capital punishment. 
We talked about just war, turning back to the book of Exodus. Let's talk about the issue of abortion for a second. We're going to deal with this on the 23rd. But think about how our culture is thinking now. Our culture believes that it is right. Much of our culture believes that it's, that it's right to take the life of an unborn, preborn baby in its mother's womb. But those same people will argue against capital punishment. They will want to defend the most guilty and not defend the most innocent. Somehow our thinking has become upside down. Now I will tell you, we have to be extremely careful when it comes to capital punishment and uh, things of this nature. Whenever a nation would decide to go to war, whenever a police officer would be in a situation where you know, perhaps they have to mete out some severe uh, justice towards an individual. These things have to be done carefully and prayerfully and truthfully and all of that. But oftentimes there's not a whole lot of time, right? But the abortion issue, once the ultrasound machine came into existence, the abortion argument should have been over. Perhaps we were in some ignorance to what was going on in the womb previous to, to those discoveries, but now we know exactly what's going on. And we know that life begins at the moment of conception. And we know that our land is guilty. And much innocent blood has been shed. And it's very, very sad. And some of this is because we don't allow the light of God's truth to guide us. We don't, we're not thinking logically anymore. We're so up in arms about one thing and, and against another, but, but often we have it upside down. And it's because perhaps... We haven't either wrestled with the truth of God or perhaps we just listen to other people make their arguments. And to, to sum up this section, it, it should be noted that we get back to the definition that not all killing is morally wrong. Why does God permit some forms of killing? What makes them lawful? The answer is that their goal is not the destruction of life, but its preservation. It obviously is to stop a person or an evil nation from destroying other people. And that is when it is important and that is when it is right to step in. Now, there are some stories that unfold in Scripture about murder that occur. And I want to take you to a few of them in Genesis chapter 4. As you turn there, Genesis chapter 4, and we consider some of the cases in the Bible I think you all know what's going on in our society, but let me just share an article I came across. The most recent report in Cook County, in which Chicago belongs, is grim. Officials say that more people were shot to death in Chicago and surrounding Cook County in 2021 than any other year on record. Gun violence killed um, the daughter of a woman that's holding a picture that's actually on my screen right now. This uh, mom who's a nurse in Chicago is calling it urban terrorism and she wants to fight it after her daughter, Jaya, 18, was shot in a convenience store. Chicago nurse Naisha B. is uh, being uh, quoted here by ABC News and she's basically showing a picture of her daughter, uh, yet another death to gun violence in Chicago. ABC News reported and taking some other information that there are 3,000 dead in one year in Chicago, either by gun violence or dying to drugs. Just to give you an idea, I did some quick math. That means eight people a day, 
eight people a day die in Chicago and the surrounding areas either by gun violence or drug overdoses. Eight people every single day. I read an old statistic that one person is shot in Philadelphia every single day. It's almost as if America has become the wild, wild west again. And we have to ask some questions about what's going on in the heart of our culture. What's wrong? How can we be so frivolous about life that's made in the image of God? There are 1,002 gun-related homicides last year in Cook County alone. That's like just one major city in the United States. But this is nothing new, brethren. This starts way back in our Bibles. In fact, the first murder recorded in the Bible happens between two brothers named Cain and Abel. And we know the story. Cain and Abel both give offerings, and God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And Cain is angry, and God warns him about his anger. And I will tell you that anger is usually what leads to more dumb, tragic things that people do. And Cain was warned by God, and and basically God said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and it wants to master you, but you must master it. But he didn't listen, and he didn't pay attention. And he went out into the field, and there was his brother, and he killed his brother in cold blood took out his anger on his brother. His anger was misplaced because God was trying to get Cain to look in the mirror. But instead of looking in the mirror at his own heart, he took it out on his brother. And sadly, this is what people often do. And so God says this, Genesis 4.10. He said, what what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And I wonder... If that's true of every time innocent blood is taken, I want you to imagine, just for a second, all the innocent lives have been taken. We have talked about abortion. We've talked about murder statistics. And if it is true that it is normative for blood to cry out to God from the ground, it just makes me wonder how many times a day this happens. That the innocent blood cries out to God from the ground. Among William Blake's most famous paintings is one depicting the murder of Abel. In the background lies Abel's muscular body, pale, gray, in death. In the foreground flees Cain. His body is moving away as he sprints by, but his torso is twisted back so that he faces the observer. His eyes are wide in terror, his mouth gaping in wrenching agony. And his hands are stopping his ears in an attempt to shut out the wail of his brother's blood screaming from the ground. The Lord of life, the God who gives life, in him is life. And that life is the light of men, holds life and death in his hands. And he has certain rules and regulations for mankind's good. But as Cain, as the Cain train went down the tracks, if you will, One of his relatives picked up the song, and this is actually captured in an ancient song, the first song in the Bible, here in Genesis 4.23, skip down. Lamech said to his wives, now he's practicing polygamy, his wives Ada and Zillah, he said, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I've killed a man. Wounding, for wounding me, did he wound him emotionally, Wound his pride at first. I don't know. I killed a boy. 
for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77-fold. Listen to my voice, wives of Lamech. I killed a man. I pulled into a gas station a couple years back, and I was putting gas in my car, and this group in another vehicle was playing their music rather loud. And I was shocked to hear the language of the music, and I guess I just lived a sheltered life. Because it was talking about doing terrible stuff to other people and then using the word mother and another word over and over again, a word that you would never want to be associated with your mother and a word that you would never want to come out of your lips, frankly. And they were blasting it so that everybody probably blocks around could hear it with absolutely no shame. And I was like, wow, the songs of a culture can tell you a lot about what's going on, and the lack of shame. And so at the end of last year, before we got into the Advent messages, I'm sitting at my computer because I know how quick we are to forget news reports, and here's what I typed. As I write these notes on November 30th, 2021, news reports are emerging about another school shooting in Oxford, Michigan. A 15-year-old student showed up with a handgun. Three are dead, six wounded, Many more will be wounded forever. This comes on the heels of a man driving through a Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin. After he made bail in mid-November, he became embroiled in another domestic incident with his ex. Waukesha investigators say in fleeing the scene, he plowed through the city's Christmas parade on November 21st, killing at least six people, including an eight-year-old boy or an eight-year-old, and injuring 62 others. And I, I share that only to tell you that I've forgotten about more of the stories than I can remember because it is so commonplace. Because we turn on the news and it seems almost weekly we hear yet another story of someone coming into a school with a gun. There was an old cartoon that a writer talked about. He was talking about metal, metal detectors in schools because things have gotten so bad, checking for guns, knives, and just in case someone snuck in a copy of the Ten Commandments. You can laugh at that because that should make you kind of laugh and make you want to cry. What are we looking for as we put in our new metal detector? Guns, knives, and just in case someone tried to sneak in one of those Bibles. Say what? See, this is the issue, right? This is the cane train. This is the song of Lamech. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, and it's, it's become his song. It's sad. So what do we do? The Supreme Court has been dealing with the issue of abortion in Texas and Mississippi about abortion bans after 15 weeks. And people are arguing, is it constitutional? Is it not? What about reproductive rights? What about the rights of that child? Let's take the worst case scenario. And I don't say this with a lack of compassion, but let's say someone was abused or forced and a child is conceived. Is it that child's fault? Should that child die for how their conception came about? That's the most extreme case. And I will tell you, in American statistics, those are the very rare cases. Those are the ones that are appealed to, but they're a very small percentage of the actual cases in America. Do you know what the actual cases in America are about? Time and convenience. It's not the right time. 
It's inconvenient. And so a life of a child is taken, and, 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 I, and I, I understand it, but then I don't understand it. How could we even be making this argument? How could we somehow justify that that child should be murdered in the womb and pay the price for the actions of others who should know better? This is where we are. Thou shall not murder. I will tell you, we're not doing real well. But there's another level of this command that I want to talk to you about. And it's the inside-outside aspect And it is what Calvin called the murder of the heart. You've heard the old saying, if looks could kill. (laughs) Well, sometimes you don't even need to say anything to kill someone with your body language or with a look. I will tell you, I've been in some places preaching, I'm not talking about here, (laughs) where I felt like if someone could get at me, the look they were given was that they wanted to either kill me or minimally shut me up. And I'm getting kind of used to it. But I will say this, that in our culture, something that has happened that is an epidemic is this. There's a bunch of murderers sitting at keyboards all around this country. They're called trolls. And what they desire to do is destroy and kill somebody's reputation and get them basically annihilated from the public square. Cancel them, as it's been called. And there are people all over the country who will wait for an opportunity, and they will comment, and I don't know why we ever decided to make this a possibility, comments, right? And what do we tend to do as people? We don't look at all the positive comments. We look at the one negative comment, because that's kind of how we are. But people... You know, this is, this is now an epidemic killing people's reputations with just a few strokes of the pen or a few strokes of the keyboard because we can comment. James puts it this way. He says, from the same mouth, I will bless my God, say hallelujah, praise him, and curse man who's made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And James says, my brethren, This should not be so. We have an accuser of the brethren. His name is Satan, accusing us day and night. God forbid that we should be adding to that among God's people. God forbid that we should, from the same mouth, be worshiping our God one moment and condemning people, especially people who are of our same family. Oh, God, I I tell you, I start to look at my own heart, and all I can say is, oh, God, forgive me. There's a story I want you to see, and it's the last story I'm going to share with you to give an illustration that's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. There's a lot of value in turning in your Bible to the story. If you can take a moment and turn there. Here's what's happened. David is a man after God's own heart. He's been anointed as the king of Israel. God has blessed him beyond what one can imagine. 2 Samuel 12. And David is walking on his roof one day and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. And he calls for her. And she's married and he's told that she's married. But he calls her in. One thing leads to another and he sleeps with her and he impregnates her. And so word comes back to David, I'm pregnant. 
So David goes into cover-up mode and David gets Uriah, the husband, who's actually on the battlefield fighting for David and he gets him to come home. But Uriah is such a noble man that he won't be with his wife. David thinks, oh, if he comes home and he sleeps with her, then when the child comes about, nobody will know what I did. But Uriah is such an honorable man, he says something like this, my, my fellow soldiers are on the battlefield. I, I can't be with my wife right now while they're out in the battle. And so he won't be with her. David goes far so far as to get him drunk. So he'll lose his inhibition and his honor, as it were, and sleep with her, but he still doesn't. And so finally, David sends a death notice in his hands, sealed, and it goes to the commander, and basically, this is the, the note, put Uriah at the front of the battle where it's the hottest, and when it gets hot and difficult, pull back from him. So essentially, David murders him by the sword of a foreign army. And David's gone into cover-up mode. And on the day that Nathan the prophet arrives, there are many scholars that believe it's the day that the, the baby is born from that adulterous affair, or that adulterous relationship. And so about a year has gone by. David thinks he's cleaned it all up. And the Lord, 2 Samuel 12, 1, sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor, you could call the story rich man, poor man. David, as the king, would be hearing cases probably all day long like his son Solomon did. The king would be like the ultimate court. So he would be used to hearing stories and cases of things that occurred and to give judgment. And so he says, the rich man had a great many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. Just side note, ewe lamb is actually the literal meaning of the name Bathsheba which he brought, he bought, he paid for it and nourished it. You can think of the dowry when a husband purchases his bride in the ancient world. He nourished it. It grew up together with him, him and his children, this little ewe lamb. It would eat of his bread, drink of his cup, lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and was, he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd. So to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him, rather he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it. That means he killed it and prepared it as a meal for the man who had come to him. Now David's been listening and David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to the man, I swear to God, that's how we would say it in our modern culture, I swear to God, this man deserves to die. Now David and his righteous indignation has gone above and beyond the law because the law said if you took someone's animal and it died, there was restitution to be made, but you weren't to die as a human because of that, because it was an animal. So David's so enraged at the story that he believes this guy should die for killing the little lamb, the little pet of the family. That's where he's at. He's blind to his own sin. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan famously said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, he begins to prophesy. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives, the harem, into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, the United Kingdom, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. I wouldn't have stopped blessing you. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And David, devastated, said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now, he deserved to die. That was the law of God, death, for causing the death of another, the unlawful death of another. But God was merciful to David. And David in Psalm 51, turn over there, because it's a beautiful expression in the light of this scene, what happens to David's heart. How could a man of God, after God's own heart, turn and, and, and live in darkness like this? But it doesn't take much to, to walk that out, does it? Because I can see my own heart. I can see how one moment I can be in love with God and a worshiper of God, and all of a sudden my attitudes and my inward heart can turn dark. It doesn't take long. And David, in the light of that confrontation, cried out, Psalm 51, 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, what I lacked you have, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Can you imagine, David, how many sleepless nights he must have had after this? Against you and you only, Psalm 51, 4, I have sinned, I've done what's evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Skip down to verse seven. He cries, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. I want to start over, oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast away, cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors and that's what David had become. He transgressed the law. Then I will teach others, transgressors, your ways. Sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that I may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. There's not something religious I can do. Here's what you want. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That's David, the man after God's own heart. And the question becomes, what's the answer? What did Jesus say about this? Let's go to one more passage, Matthew chapter 5. This is the fa famous Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is going to talk about Murder of the heart. This is where Calvin gets it. He's going to talk about what really matters to God is not just the outward actions, but the inward. 
And here's what it says. Matthew 5. Let's start at verse 17. Don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, Matthew 5, 17, but to fulfill. Skip down to verse 20. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, and they spent a lot of time on commentaries from the rabbis about the commands. You heard that they were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Actually, the word of God said they should die. But this was their commentary on the commandments. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And all God's people said, wow. And here's what Jesus is basically saying. You religious leaders believe that you're right in God's eyes because you can impress people with the greetings in the marketplace and the the right clothing that you wear. And you can go before the altar and say, I fast twice a week. At least I'm not like this other clown over here. I fast twice a week. I give alms. I, I do this and I do that but you walk away condemned because God knows your heart. And some of this language here is the idea that with the mouth, we could say, that person is an idiot. That person is fool, a fool. That, I wish that person would die. That person's good for nothing. Watch 15 minutes of the news. I condemn 15 people in 15 minutes. Here's usually what happens. That person's an idiot. What a fool. And I think I'm right. But I don't know that I'm justified in God's sight. That's not to mention the other times when we might criticize a family member. Sorry. Maybe that's what we all needed. (laughs) We might criticize a family member in the kingdom of God or a family member in our own family Or we might do it to the one that we're supposed to love the most. And I tell you what, I started studying this week and I I was like, yeah, I know the sixth commandment. Yeah, I've looked at the original language. Yeah, pulled out some stories of murder. And then I started looking at Jesus's words. And then I read an author who said, I'm a murderer. I'm a murderer because I've often hated even people in the kingdom. Maybe for a moment, maybe I justified it. Maybe I, I, I t- thought I'm on the high ground because I got it all figured out. No. No. And so the question becomes, when the law of God exposes me, what do I do? I need a savior. And that's why the law is a schoolmaster to drive me to Jesus. Because if he kept a record of my sin and my heart, and we're just talking about one of the commandments here. We'll talk about more next week. Hope you come back. (laughs) I need a savior. And on the cross, 
Jesus Christ died for murderers like the Apostle Paul and David. He died for thieves and robbers and adulterers. He was treated on the cross as though he had committed my sin and your sin. Not just the outward actions, but the sins of the heart and the sins of the attitude and the sins of the mouth and the the sins of nonverbal communication. He took it all. On the cross, he was treated as though he were guilty, yet completely innocent. This is the good news of the gospel, amen? This is why we need him so desperately, and this is why I need his Holy Spirit to change me from the inside out. This is why you should read Galatians where it says, you know, uh, one of the works of the flesh in the New King James is murders and envies and strife and dissension and all this ugly stuff. And it's like, well, Lord, what do we do with that? What do I do with those inner attitudes that nobody can see? And it says, crucify him. Let your life walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the flesh is not just lust. It's all these things. It's all these attitudes. It's all of this, I'm up here looking down on everybody else until when the law reveals your heart, all you can do is join other people at the foot of the cross. Amen? And when you proclaim it, you can tell other sinners where to find hope and find living bread. Well, Father, we've come before your word in humility, and your word has a way of exposing us. Would you forgive us of our sins? Thank you that you nailed those sins to the cross with your own precious son. Thank you that when his precious blood spilled down at Calvary, by his blood, by his death, we are healed. We have all gone astray. We've all turned to our own way, but you laid on him the iniquity of us all. The law is indeed a light, a mirror, a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. We've looked at the inward, outside reality of the law, but there's also another aspect. You're, You're the God of life, and the question for the church is how can we be those who share life? We do it by sharing the gospel. We do it by reaching out. We do it by loving our enemies. We do it by adopting. We do it by Royal Family Kids Camp. We do it by benevolence. We do it through missions. We do it through evangelism. We do it by giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. We do it by being a community of life and light. And we need you to change us, Lord. Make us more like Jesus. Now, if you've not met Jesus, this would be a great time just staying in that attitude of prayerfulness to just say, Lord Jesus, save me. Maybe you didn't realize how much you need a Savior. Maybe you thought it was for other people or you were okay. But you need a Savior. And he loves you. Ask him into your life. Say, Lord, I repent of my sin. I'm I'm sorry for it. I'm sorry for breaking your commandments in more ways than I could imagine. Thank you, Jesus, for entering into our pain and living that perfect life that I could never live and dying to take my punishment. Thank you for triumphing over death through the resurrection. I 
place my trust in you and you alone for my salvation. If you're a prodigal and maybe you've been wandering, man, and maybe your sin has blinded you to the reality of God's word and God's light. We've all been there. And perhaps the, the thing that resonates in your heart is, oh God, cleanse me. Restore me like David. He'll hear that prayer. All he's looking for is contrition, brokenness. He's not looking for you to do 25 things religiously. He's just saying, come to me and trust in my son. Start over. And Father, for this precious congregation, would you just make us more like you through the power of your Holy Spirit. This new year ahead of us, make us those who speak life, edify one another instead of tearing each other down. Those who promote life, those who bring light into other people's lives, those who will decide instead of joining in with the crowd, we will be the one who encourages, the one who has an arm, the one who has an ear, the one who has the shoulder. Thank you for this beautiful family of believers. They're already practicing so many of those things, and I pray you'd help us, Lord, in this year just to be a community of love and life and light to those who will, uh, we will encounter in the days ahead. We love you and we thank you.